At daybreak, Jesus went out to a solitary place. The people were looking for him, and when they came to where he was, they tried to keep him from leaving them. But he said, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also, because that is why I was sent. And he kept on preaching in the synagogues of Judea. As Dr. Sweeney gets ready here, I'm just going to introduce him to you. He was appointed, um, elected, chosen uh, president of Emmanuel School of Religion uh, recently. Many of you might have been here a year or so ago when Dr. Bob Wetzel came. Uh, he was president of Emmanuel for a number of years, and Dr. Sweeney um, has taken over that uh, important role. We have uh, supported Emmanuel in our missions budget for a long, long time and uh, have had uh, the last three, uh, inclusively, uh, preachers of ours um, have spent time at Emmanuel or have degrees from Emmanuel, so we have had close ties uh, for a long, long time, so we are grateful to them for their uh, important ministry in, uh, in training uh, those who do theological study and who preach on a regular basis. Um, there was a lady last year who said about, about Dr. Wetzel, you know, I expected a guy with all those letters behind his name to be really boring, but uh, he was actually pretty good. Um, Dr. Sweeney is the kind of guy who has had real-life experience for many, many years and uh, was in the missions field for uh, a number of years and brings that experience uh, and practical um, education to the field of theological study in seminary, but also in his leadership and his preaching. So uh, please welcome with me Dr. Mike Sweeney. Yeah, I once had a woman at a church... uh, started telling me about all of, her, all of her aches and pains. When I told her I, I had a Ph.D., not an M.D., she said, oh, you're the kind of doctor can't do nobody no good. So, <clears throat> that's right, yeah. I appreciate it so much being asked to come and, and uh, join with you here this morning. And, Emmanuel, we're very grateful to what the church is, for what the church has done for us all these years and the support you have. And, and we're grateful for how nice you are to Jeff, Jeff McNabb regularly, whether he deserves it or not. You have no idea how many people call the school and say, we're not giving another dime to the school until Jeff McNabb comes out to visit us. And so uh, I don't have any idea about that either. I just thought I'd bring it up <coughs> this morning. But uh, Emmanuel is just down the road. We have a display out here that you can kind of take a look at a few things. I don't know how long it's been since some of you have visited our campus but we've gone through a lot of changes in the last 10 years, and we've got some beautiful housing for the students and the Thompson Community Center. And, and one of the things that happens at the Thompson Community Center are uh, Emmanuel Institute's events. And these are just two-hour workshops on all kinds of aspects of the church and ministry, and they're for everybody. And uh, you can check our website to see what's being offered. We've got another one coming up this Thursday. But it's, it's something you might be interested in. We have some fascinating speakers some of the leading experts in certain fields in the whole country that come put on these two-hour workshops. So um, thank you again for, for having me this morning. I'd like to start by saying that the Bible is a missionary book. Now, that, that may sound a little self-serving coming from somebody who served so many years on the mission field, but I want to emphasize that point this morning. I, I want to maybe even pound this pulpit a little bit to get you to understand that if there's only one thing you take away from what I have to say to you today, it will be this, that the Bible is a missionary book. Now, 
People don't understand that. The church has forgotten that. In all of our battles over what the Bible is, we seem to have neglected this most basic truth. We've tried to turn the Bible into something else. We've tried to turn it into a book of theology, you know, dry and lifeless and complicated and boring. You know what some theologians can be like, right? Like listening to some of them speak is like taking a trip from Greenville to Memphis by way of Miami. You know, who can follow their line of reasoning? Someone has to wonder sometimes if the writers of the New Testament would even recognize some of the doctrines attributed to them by modern people who consider themselves to be theologians and biblical scholars, you see, because this is, this is not what the biblical writers were trying to do. They weren't trying to write a book of theology. They were trying to write a book of mission. And there's a big difference between those two concepts, you see, because if, if it's just a book of theology, then you only read the Bible to understand facts and theories about God. But if it's a book of mission, you read the Bible to understand what you're here for. I think that's a pretty important difference. Well, there's other people who want to make the Bible something else. They want to make the Bible a book of rules. You know the type of people I'm talking about. Sometimes I refer to them as the two-column people. You know, over in this column here, these are all the things we need to do to keep God happy. You know, go to church on Sunday, pray, read our Bibles fast, obey our parents, be nice to Samaritans, things like that. And then over in the other column are all the things we need to avoid to stay out of trouble with God. You know, lying, hating, cheating, cursing, killing, getting tattoos, you know, bad things like that. <clears throat> we had an experience in Papua New Guinea back early on in our time there. We went there in 91. This was, I think, 1993. And there was a group of men from the Sogram River area, which was down south, and uh, and these guys were going to some meeting on the north coast. It was a three-day walk for them. And they arrived in Kadiati, our village, at the end of the first night, which was a Saturday night. And they spent the night in the village. And the next morning they came to me and they asked me if they could use the little open-air shelter I'd built outside my house as a, for a worship service. I said, that'd be great. You can do that. And they said, would you care to join us? I said, I'd love to join you. So we all sat around inside this little shelter and and we sang a few songs together in Melanesian Pigeon. That's the trade language of Papua New Guinea. And, and then one of the guys got up to speak. He said, today I want to talk to you about the work of the Holy Spirit. He said, the Holy Spirit's job is to keep track of everything you do. And he said, and when you die, if all the good things you've done outnumber all the bad things you've done, you get to go straight to heaven. Free ticket, right to heaven. But if all the bad things you've done outnumber the good things you've done, well, he said, you're not going to have to worry about packing for cold weather where you're going. Kind of turned the Holy Spirit into this celestial Santa Claus who was checking to see if we were naughty or nice. But instead of putting coal in our stockings if we were too naughty, just turned us into coal instead, you know. But the Bible was never meant to be just a book of rules, even though there's a lot in the Bible about what's right and wrong. The Bible is a missionary book. And there are other people yet who want to make the Bible just a book of history. And there's certainly a lot of important history in the pages of the Bible. And some very intelligent people will look at the history in there and they'll have these big discussions as to the order of the kings of Israel or, or the date of the Exodus or whether Galatians was written to people in the north or the south in the 40s or the 50s. And, and some people get caught up with great arguments about the end times, you know, with a history that hasn't even quite happened yet. And we consider somebody to be a great scholar if they've, they've got a total grasp of all these historical facts or they've published a book or even produced an entire series of movies on the end times. But really, you know, the Bible was never meant to be just a book of history. 
And it certainly wasn't meant to be our crystal ball. The Bible is a missionary book. The first step to understanding any piece of literature is knowing what it was written for. If you read a book thinking it was written for one purpose and it was written for an entirely different purpose, well, you're going to misunderstand it. You're going to mess it up. Now, when I was a boy, when I was a young boy, I was an avid reader. I just loved to read. You know, it was, for, it was purely for entertainment, but I just loved reading. I just devoured books. My mom would take me and my brother and sister to the public library every week or two. Now, this was a little town in northern Iowa when I was a kid, and, and they had this wonderful library building. It was an old stone building. And the cool thing about this building is when you walk up the front steps into the library, on either side of the stairs were these stone lions. You know, to a six, seven-year-old boy, stone lions are pretty cool things. But what was even neater than that was the fact if you looked up under the corners of the roof, there were these stone gargoyles up there. And if you went to the library on a rainy day, you could see the water just shooting out of the mouths of the gargoyles to the ground below. But the coolest thing of all for me as a young boy was if you went there in the wintertime, you could see icicles coming out of their nostrils, you know. <laughs> and anything that comes out of the nostril of a gargoyle is pretty cool to a seven-year-old boy. And we go in the building, and, and it had that, that look and feel of a library. You know, the sound of like a, it smelled like a library. You know what that smell is, that kind of musky, inky, sweet book smell that all libraries have? I think they give librarians canisters of that smell when they graduate from library school just to make libraries smell like that. And I go straight to the children's section and I grab a stack of books and take them to the counter and check them out, go home and curl up on the couch and start reading my book. And when it was bedtime, I'd go up and I'd hide the book under my pillow. And my mother would come in and she'd say goodnight to me and she'd turn off the light. And I'd wait for her footsteps to recede down the hallway and, and down the stairs. Then I'd get up, turn the light on, and keep reading my book. You know, I think I'm the first person ever to do that. But she caught me. She came up, and she saw the light under my bedroom door, and she came in, and she took the book and turned off the light and left me alone, suffering in bed in the dark with nothing to do but sleep. It's a traumatic thing for a young man to go through. So I got my baseball bat and a flashlight, and I stood that baseball bat up under my sheets, and I turned my covers into a tent and kept reading my book until the batteries went dry. But she caught me again, and she took the bat, and she took the book, and she took the flashlight and docked my allowance for the batteries and started checking up on me every ten minutes just to make sure I was good and asleep. So I thought and thought, and finally I said to myself, you know what, Sweeney, you can outsmart this woman. <laughs> so the next time I went to the library, I checked out a book on how to read Braille. And I worked at that, and I worked at that until I could recognize all 26 letters and, and all the digits, and all the numbers, 0 through 9, with just my fingertips. I was so proud. You know, I was a highly motivated person at the time. And so when we went back to the library two weeks later, I went right up to the librarian, and I said, I want to check out a book written in Braille. I said, any book will do. I wore sunglasses just to make it good look, look good, you know. <laughs> I know what she was thinking. She was thinking, poor kid, he's gone blind since he was here two weeks ago and he's already learned Braille. Well, she went out back and she came forward with this kind of funny smirk on her face and she handed me a book with no writing on it whatsoever, just some bumps on the cover. And I checked it out and I took it home and I hid it right under my bed. 
getting ready for that night. And, and that night after Mom turned off the lights and left, I reached under my bed and pulled out that book and excitedly ran my fingers over the cover to see what adventures I would be living in the dark. And it took me a while to figure it out, you know, because I was at the barely literate stage of reading Braille, about a word every two minutes. You know, it would have taken me a couple years to read a book of any length. But I finally got it. It was, the title was one word, just eight letters long. It said, Cookbook. Kind of explain the funny smirk on the librarian's face, don't you think? Here I was wanting to read about pirates and mysteries and adventures, and I was stuck groping dots telling me about how to make the perfect pot roast, you know. If you read a book thinking it was written for one purpose and it was written for an entirely different purpose altogether, you're going to be disappointed. If you think the book is for an adventure, and it's telling you how to make blueberry muffins, it's not even worth opening the cover. And if you read the Bible without understanding that this is a missionary book, you will never get out of it what God wants you to get out of it. So before all else, when we read our Bibles, we need to understand that this is a book about God's mission to the world. And only when we understand that simple fact will the pages of the Bible open up to us as they should. Now, Jesus. Jesus was a man with a mission. And again, we often don't think of him in those terms, do we? I was up at Emmanuel's library on the second floor, and I went to the BT-202 section. BT-202 is the Library of Congress designation for books on Christology. Christology is about the doctrine of Christ, who Jesus was. A lot of very smart people have written some very fat books about Jesus. Because if you stop and think about it, there's more that can be said about Jesus than any man who's ever lived, isn't there? So I took a little while, and I thumbed through a bunch of these books just to see what was in them. And I was looking at the table of contents to see what the chapter headings were about. I saw a lot of really interesting chapter headings. I saw chapters talking about Jesus as the incarnation of God, and Jesus as the Word of God. I saw chapters on Jesus as Savior and and Jesus as Messiah, Jesus as our example. I saw chapters on Jesus as the, as the victor over the powers that try to bind God's people. I even saw chapters about Jesus as a social reformer and Jesus as a revolutionary. Just fascinating stuff. And I thought, you know, I, I could do nothing for the next year but read books from BT202 and I'd be a better person for it. But in all the books I looked at, I never saw a single chapter entitled Jesus is God's missionary. But you know, when you read through the four Gospels, there is absolutely nothing that stands out more clearly than that Jesus was a man with a mission. Do you remember when Jesus was in Samaria with his disciples and, and he sent his disciples into town to get supplies and he had his little discussion with the woman at the well, you know, talking about worshiping God in spirit and in truth in John chapter 4? And then his disciples came back from town, and they came up to Jesus, and they said, Lord, here's some food. And what is it that Jesus said to them? He said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and accomplish his work. Of all the things we can say about Jesus, we need to start with the simple fact that God had given Jesus a mission to proclaim his kingdom, to tell about God's reign to the world and show people what that meant. Jesus came to this world to demonstrate to you and me what it means 
when God is in charge. And there's absolutely nothing more profound than that. You know, the writer of the book of Hebrews calls Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. Now, those are kind of different types of terms if you think about what those things mean, apostle and high priest. I mean, what, what do you picture in your mind when you think of a high priest? I think of some distinguished fellow with a nice white beard standing before the people with, with flowing gowns and, and lifting up offerings and sacrifices to God while everyone looks on in awe. It's a very religious type of, of, of term, a very status-oriented thing, high priest. But the term apostle is, is from a different thought world altogether. I dare say that 95% of the people in our churches today don't have a clue what the word apostle actually means because, you see, it's not even an English word. We never even translated it. It's a Greek word. And it comes from a Greek verb that means to send someone out with a mission. And the nearest English equivalent to the word apostle is the word missionary. In other words, the writer of the book of Hebrews says that God sent Jesus to this world as his missionary. Now, I like that. And one of the things I like about thinking of Jesus as a missionary is that it, it, it makes him seem more like a man of action than just a doctrine of the church. You know, Jesus was someone who was motivated and moving forward. He wasn't just a nice idea. Have you ever met anybody like that? Someone whose, whose sense of mission just propels them through life? They're kind of rare. You don't meet them every day. And, and when you do, sometimes they're kind of uncomfortable people to be around. Because their, their sense of mission uh, puts them at odds with the world around them. Now, Jesus was in, where was he? Jesus was, was, was up to sea, and, and the people, they loved him, and they loved his words, and they wanted him to stay. And, and I think it must have been very tempting for Jesus to just set, settle down there and, and in Capernaum and just put down roots and, and here he was, just a half a day's journey from Nazareth where he'd grown up. I'll bet he knew most of the people there in Capernaum. And they, they loved him and they loved his words. And, and he could have just, just put out his shingle and been the, the town rabbi and faith healer. He could have published scrolls and signed autographs and waited for the entire world to beat a path to his doorway. He could have done that. But he couldn't. What is it that he said to the people? He said, I have to preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other cities also because I was sent for this purpose. Now, you know, when I think about that, that doesn't really match some of my notions of what I usually think Jesus must have been like. You know, the, the soft and gentle Jesus who hugs children and puts them in his lap and carries our burdens and nods his head with understanding as we tell him how rough life can be. And it's not that that's not true. It's just that if that's our only notion of what Jesus was like, I think we need to go back and read the Bible again. Jesus was someone who was always on the move. And sometimes he had to disappoint people because to live up to their expectations would have held him back from the mission that God had given him. You know, Jesus did not come to this world to meet our expectations. Jesus came to this world to do the work of God. Now, have you yourself ever felt anything like that? Like God has laid a mission on your heart and, and it's just overpowering you? 
Uh, you go to bed at night and you can't think of anything but this, this, this burden that God has laid on your heart. And you get up in the morning and you don't feel like you have time to eat your cornflakes because, because times are wasting. And everything that happens during the course of that day somehow relates back to this mission that God has given you. Have you ever felt anything like that? Here about seven years ago, my wife and I were in our village in Papua New Guinea. And our boys were up at boarding school. And at this time, uh, the, this epidemic of measles came through our area. <clears throat> now, you need to understand that I didn't go to Papua New Guinea as a medical missionary, even though I ended up doing an, an awful lot of medical work. I came there to do Bible translation. And the only medical training I'd actually had was here in the States when I took a basic first aid CPR course. And then when we went to Papua New Guinea, we were in what they called jungle camp, kind of a boot camp for missionaries. And they, they gave us this basic jungle survival medicine course where we learned to do things like, like treat malaria and, and, uh, and bind up wounds and maybe do a little stitching and give people shots and, and what to do if uh, death adder bites you, which is say goodbye to as many people as you can, as fast as you can. <clears throat> but here we were in the village and children were dying. I mean, in some villages near ours, a quarter of the children under the age of five died during this epidemic. And, and people would bring me their little babies just covered with spots and burning up with fevers, 104, 105. And all I could do was give them a little liquid Tylenol to bring their fevers down and then tell the parents to bathe them in the streams to keep their temperatures down during the night. And the next morning, we would hear the drums announcing the death of another child. It was, it was heartbreaking. And Lynn and I thought, we, we've got to see if we can do something about this. So we got on the radio and made arrangements and walked the nine miles out to the grass airstrip. And a little MAF Cessna picked us up and took us into town. And I went straight to the health department. And I explained the problem to them at the health department. I said, we're out in an area where they've never had an immunization program and the measles have hit and children are dying. I said, but I think we can stop it. I think if we started a vaccination program right now, I think we could stop it. I said, I've got a solar-powered refrigerator out there. I can keep the vaccines in. There's an aid post orderly out there that's trained in how to give the shots. I said, all we need from you are the vaccines. If you will give us the vaccines, I think we can save a lot of lives. Well, the people in the health department were very polite, and they sent me from one person to the next and one office to the next. You know, we, we complain about government red tape here in the United States. The United States is a rank amateur when it comes to red tape. Go to a third world country, they can teach you how to do red tape the right way. And they just kept me going around for the longest time. And finally, at the end of the day, they said to me, we're sorry, sir, you're not a licensed medical practitioner here in Papua New Guinea. We can't release any vaccines to you. But the next morning I came back and I made a total nuisance of myself. You know, and, and I could tell I was irritating them, and I don't want to irritate people. I like to be everybody's friend, but children were dying. And I knew something had to be done about it. But after a couple of hours, they gave up any pretense of politeness with me, and they said, listen, we're not giving you any vaccines. You need to get out. So I went to the Pioneer Bible Translator office in town, and I was pretty miserable, you can imagine. And I walked in, and here was Jackie Harper sitting at a table. Now, Jackie and her husband, Bob, had retired from their jobs in the United States, <clears throat> and they came to Papua New Guinea just to help us out with anything that needed to be done. You know, they were great people. Bob had been a contractor and a preacher, and all of our buildings and vehicles needed repair, and he, he was great at doing that. And Jackie 
had been a registered nurse in the United States. Now, she couldn't work as a registered nurse in Papua New Guinea because of work permit issues, but everyone at the hospital and the health department knew Jackie because those of us that lived out in the bush would send our sick people into the hospital, and Jackie's the one that would pick them up at the airport and take them to the hospital and make sure they were cared for and follow up on their treatment, and everybody there knew Jackie. So I was just commiserating with Jackie and telling her, you know, what a terrible problem it was, how many children had died, and, and how the health department was full of stupid people and they weren't helping us out. And, and Jackie caught the vision, too. And the next morning on her own, she went to the health department. And from the sound of things, all Jackie needed to do was flash a couple of her big Jackie smiles around the room. And two hours later, she came back to our office with this big cooler loaded to the brim with vaccines. And their parting words to Jackie were, there's plenty more if you need them, Jackie. I should, should have sent Jackie the first day, shouldn't I? Well, a week later, Linda and I were back out in our village, and we were watching this long line of parents bringing their children into that little shelter beside my house where they were getting their shots. The sound of children crying was never so sweet, you know. And, uh, you know, I, I have to tell you, in all of this, we stopped the epidemic. You know, we... A week later, all the deaths stopped. It's amazing how fast you can stop a measles epidemic once you start a vaccination program. But I wasn't the hero. I couldn't get the vaccines. I needed Jackie to go get the vaccines. I, I didn't organize anybody. I didn't give a single shot. All I did was take this cooler and put it in an airplane and transfer it to a helicopter and then load all that stuff in my refrigerator and tell something for somebody from the village, go tell the aid post orderly, I got vaccines. And everybody else did all the hard work. But for a month of my life, that was my mission. Have you ever felt anything like that? You know, you're never more alive than when you have a mission. But my question for the churches in America is, are we alive? Do we have a mission? How many of our congregations can honestly say to the people around them, we were sent for this purpose? How many of the people that sit in our pews and chairs have any concept that the mission that God gave Jesus to proclaim his kingdom and demonstrate his kingdom to the world has been passed on to his people now? And it's our job to demonstrate God's kingdom to the world. You know, the mission of Emmanuel School of Religion, and the reason I work there, is to pass, is to help our students become fully integrated with God's mission to the world and use their gifts to be a part of that mission. But the challenge I've faced as an educator is how do you pass on this sense of mission to your students? Now, we're pretty good at a lot of things in the American system of education. We're very good at teaching people facts. And I think we do a good job at having discussions and delving deeply into complex issues. And, and I think we've all done, learned to do a good job at teaching our students how to think more clearly. But how do you pass on this sense of urgency? How do you make your students so uncomfortable with what God wants for their lives that they can barely sit still through class? Now, we call it all kinds of things. We might call it a sense of passion or or motivation, or even a sense of calling, but it all boils down to this overpowering sense of purpose in life. And you don't get it by, by being given an assignment. You don't, 
You don't write a paper and all of a sudden develop it. The only way I have found to effectively pass this sense of mission on to my students is by introducing them to someone else who's already overpowered by it. But once in a while, once in a while, we get a student who comes prepackaged with it. And when we do, I got to tell you, that student is just a joy to teach. Because, you know, they're, they're not doing assignments to get a grade. They're not speaking up in class to impress anybody. They're coming because they know that God has given them this mission. And that just as with anything else in life, they need to prepare if they're going to do it well. These are the types of students that most of us would meet and say, they don't need to go to seminary. They already get it. Even I meet students like that. and Wow, they, they already get it. But they're also the students who go to class and get more out of any class than anybody else because they see how it all fits together. You know, they're not studying theology just as some airy, spary thing out there. It all fits in with what they're trying to do for God. They're, they're not studying Greek and Hebrew just because it's a nice, tough class to take. They're doing it so they can understand God's word more fully, so they can be more fully engaged in God's mission in this world. You know, you can never take credit when you have a student like that in your class. You can only sit back and thank God for the opportunity of having taught them and realize at the same time that you've probably learned as much from them as they have from you. You know, there's a mathematical principle that's called the Pareto Principle. Anyone ever heard of the Pareto Principle? The Pareto Principle states that for many types of things... Yeah, he's, you know, teacher's pet down here in front, yeah. <laughs> that for many types of events, roughly 80% of the effects will come from 20% of the causes. 80% of the effects from 20% of the causes. So we find in, in many countries of the world, most countries in the world, 80% of the land is owned by 20% of the people. And in most businesses, 80% of the revenues come from 20% of the clients. That's the Pareto Principle. We find it at Emmanuel, 80% of our donations come from 20% of our donors, among whom Greenville First Christian Church is one of those 20% for Emmanuel. But almost all nonprofit organizations are the same way. And we've also found in many studies that it's the same way in the average congregation, that 80% of what comes into the offering plate comes from 20% of the people, and 80% of the work that is done in the average congregation is done by 20% of the people. That's the Pareto principle. But the question that kept occurring to me is, what's the difference between this 20% who are doing and supporting most of the work of the church and the 80% who are not? What makes them different? And there have been a lot of theories that have been put forth about what's the difference between these two groups. Some people have thought that this 20% must be the group that has the most time on their hands, so they have more time to give to the church. But we've found upon a little bit of investigation that really a lot of these people are community and business leaders that have very full calendars, but they still make it a priority to carve out time for their church. So that's not the case. And other people have speculated, well, maybe these 20% are the richest people in the congregation and they have more to give. And while it's true that many churches have some fairly well-to-do people who are very generous, we also find that they have people who have considerably lower means, who give far more sacrificially so that they too are a major contributor to what goes into the offering. So that's not the case. And other people have speculated, well, maybe this 20% are the, the most educated or the most organized or just the most naturally talented people in the church. 
Well, there's never been any study to bear that one out. The real difference between the 20% who are doing and supporting most of the work of the church and the 80% who are not is their sense of mission. This 20% are the group of people that, that understand that by being involved in the work of the church, they are a part of something that is far bigger than themselves. These are the people who know that God wants to work through his church, and they can't stand the thought of even missing out on any of that. This 20% is the group that has come to realize that God is, above all, a God with a mission. Now, wouldn't it be nice if every one of us here were part of that 20%? Let's have a word of prayer. We thank you, Father, for sending Jesus as your missionary to this world, not only to reach out to us, but to show us how to reach out to others. And we thank you so much for allowing us, us, to be a part of your great mission to a lost and dying world. Strengthen us. Cause us to feel that sense of purpose in our lives. For in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.